This is not from the book of Matthew, and that's part of what we're going to talk about. Uh, however, there are also um, just some, some not, not, I guess not business things to attend to, but, uh, but some matters to discuss as well. We have said a lot of goodbyes recently, and our goodbyes continue. Uh, we kind of said goodbye to the Wiltons, who I saw somewhere here this morning. Oh, you guys moved on me. Like, I get used to where people sit. And, uh, and Travis and Carrie have not yet left. They're still here. But uh, Dwayne and Doris, are you guys leaving this week? So this is your last Sunday with us. So we, uh, we just want to take a moment to uh, just affirm our love and affection for you both, uh, for your kind service to all of us in, in many, many ways, uh, and just to let you know you will be greatly and dearly missed, and we look forward to when you return and come visit, which we expect. Uh, so um, take time to say goodbye this morning to uh, to Dwayne and Doris, and we will pray for them. As we head to prayer, there is something specific we want to pray for today, and in many ways. And and uh, I, I'm not sure about College Place, because even though I live in College Place, Bradley's in Walla Walla, but school goes back on Tuesday. And so we want to take some time specifically to pray for schools. So, and educators, which we have quite a few here. If you're an educator, would you please stand? That would be Rob... Anne-Marie, you count. You sub, don't you? Quite a bit, yeah. So uh, I know there's more. Katie, you count. Stand up. We, we, and there's more than this, but not all of them are here today. So uh, please be praying for uh, these people and others among us. And we're going to pray for you today. You guys can sit down now. But uh, we thank you for your service. Um, education, as we know, as in, is important. Public education has its roots in the church during the Reformation. Uh, the church, in fact, in Europe started uh, educating people to read so that they could read God's word. And uh, we should never underestimate the value of that. Uh, so today, specifically, we want to pray for schools, and we're going to be praying for the Rubishes this month as well. But uh, as you leave today, out on the Welcome Center is uh, a little guide, uh, guest services uh, counter there. There's a little guide for spending the next three weeks, 21 days, praying for schools. And so we would invite you to pick one of those up. We didn't really have a budget line for it. I think it costs us about $6 a book. So uh, if, you, if, you, if that's prohibitive, just take one anyways. If not, and you could uh, contribute 6 bucks to the uh, bookstore fund, that would be greatly um, appreciated. And so as students and teachers get ready to head to school this year, let me just remind us of two verses. Teachers, for you, I would read 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And then to students, as you go back to school, I would remind you all of Proverbs 4, 13. Hold on to instruction. Don't let it go. Guard it, for it is your life. Be very careful about what instruction you take in and guard and keep, for it is your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we have much to, uh, to bring and, and to lay down at your feet this morning. Lord, we want to first uh, start 
by expressing our gratitude to you for the time that we have had. Uh, many here much more than, than me, but I'm grateful as well for the past couple of years of uh, being able to know and co-labor with Duane and Doris, and we are just, um, we're sad that they are going, and yet we know that you, um, throughout history, have, have often sent your people out. You've moved your people around. You've planted them in places where you want them to be and where you use them, and so we would pray for them the same as we've prayed for the Steinleys, who we've had with us recently and even this morning, as well as Travis and Carrie, that you would uh, help them to quickly find uh, a faithful church, that they would dig in deep and, uh, and grow together in community as you have designed us for, Lord, that they would uh, be a blessing there as they uh, serve. And so, Lord, we pray that the community that is waiting for them would be a blessing to them, uh, but that they would also be a blessing to that community and that you would do wondrous things that we uh, don't understand or can't comprehend yet through what you're doing there. Lord, we want to pray also for schools and for teachers as we head back this year, Lord. Um, there's, uh, I think, across the board, um, no matter what your, your beliefs are, there's concerns uh, in, in education and fears as we entrust our children to those who would uh, instruct their minds. And, and we know that the mind is, by your design, the gateway to the heart. That when you call us in Romans 12 to, uh, to, to have a spiritual service of worship, you, you tell us that we get to that place by the renewing of our minds. And so may we understand just how important uh, the mind is. May we understand just how important uh, faithful instruction is. And so, Lord, we pray for our teachers, both full-time, part-time, substitutes, whatever they may be. Lord, we pray that you would uh, know that their labor in you to, to, to uphold faithfulness and to, to love these students is not in vain. Uh, that even though they may uh, work in uh, ever-increasing difficult environments, that you, um, you have often planted your people in hard places to, uh, to make a difference and to stand in the gap. And so we pray for them as they endeavor into another year. We pray for our students that they might have uh, minds that are uh, sharp to understand uh, truth versus error. Uh, Lord, that uh, the, the instruction of your word, not only here but also at home, would uh, supersede and, and even guide all of that other instruction. Lord, um, we also want to pray for the Rubishes, and we thank you for their partnership with us uh, in Sri Lanka. We thank you that despite the unrest there, uh, that they are well, that they uh, are able to get needed money, that they have food, that their home is well, that they've been safe. We thank you for uh, the answer to that request. But Lord, as the country there needs economic uh, relief and is seeking economic relief, but it is difficult to find when your government is in collapse. Lord, um, they're just in a, in, a, in a tough spot. And so we pray that you would not only bring peace to the, the area and some economic stability and provide for the needs of the people there, but we pray that you would use your people to let the gospel shine forth throughout it all. Lord, as we look to your word now, we, um, we simply ask that you would instruct us as to who you are. Lord, we need the help of your spirit to understand who you are because you are 
uh, unimaginable to us and unfathomable. And so uh, use your spirit to instruct us and to show us who you are today. For your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The last thing I would remind us of is that tonight is our typical corporate prayer night. We will meet here at five. We will not share a meal together, however, because we're going to do a little bit of divide and conquer. We're going to meet here. We're gonna, we've got a list of some schools and some prayers, and we're going to leave. We're going to go to schools, and we're going to pray for those schools and for those teachers and for those students uh, right there on those campuses. And so uh, it's going to be impossible to orchestrate getting everybody back at the same time and trying to share a meal. But I would uh, highly encourage and invite you to join us here at five where we will meet and then go out in groups and pray for our schools. Um, I remember very, very, very distinctly my first semester at Multnomah University. Uh, which was then Multnomah Bible College. And, and I think part of that is because, um, you know, I think every student comes in, well, at least I can't speak to every student, but I came in thinking I knew a lot, and you immediately kind of get assaulted with how little you know. Um, I think one of the, and, and in wonderful ways, um, I think maybe the most shocking experience for me came in one of the very first classes you take. In fact, it is the first theology class you take, and it's called theology proper. And it's called that because the word theology simply means the study of God. And you are in this class not studying different areas of theology, but you are studying who God is. And one of the things that astounded me was how much I did not know the God that I served. And I was devastated by it. And I began this quest to know probably more and, and probably a pursuit in pride than God had given me to know. One of the books, or probably the book that, that most just devastated me in my time there, all four years there, was a little book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's for sale in our book corner over here, and it's on the shelf as a highlighted book today. If you don't know A.W. Tozer, he was, uh, he, he was a high school dropout, did not have a high school education, uh, was a, a pastor and a profound author. What I found in this book was these short three to four page chapters that were so deep with the truth of who God is, you couldn't help but to read one chapter and then you had to just put it down and ponder what you had read. Maybe the most important chapter I read in that book was the first chapter where I have stolen the title for today's message, Why We Must Think Rightly About God. Why We Must Think Rightly About God. And I want to talk about that today. And one of the things I want to do over the coming months, I have no idea how long it will take, but uh, we, we were talking about how do we create some space in services to be able to talk about people's experience and give testimony to how they're living out and, and examples, maybe successes and failures alike, of, of living out this idea of reaching 500 families, of being hospitable, of, of being concerned for the lost and getting, getting out of our comfort zones to build relationships, genuine friendships with people who don't yet know Jesus. 
And I think one of the things we can do is in this time, and I think it's also helpful as we prepare ourselves for communion, is to set aside the first Sunday of the month for a time and to simply look at the attributes of God, to ask the question, who is God? And so today is uh, going to be the, the first message in that endeavor. There'll be shorter messages, again, allowing time for communion and testimony. There is great and grave danger in thinking about what God is like. And I would start out by giving us an incredible warning here. Because statements like, and you can finish these, I think God is like, or I imagine God to be, are not helpful. They are very, very dangerous statements. Because they lead us to think about God as though he is like us. We'll talk more about that in a minute. I had a, a recent conversation with uh, a high school uh, graduate this year. He's, he's just out of high school, and we were having coffee. And he was telling me that one of the, the problems, we were talking about the church. He said, one of the great difficulties I have with the church is, is it seems to be when you hear people in the church talk about the God of the Old Testament, you get one picture of God, and the God of the New Testament, you get another picture of God. But we just sang this morning that God never changes. Do we have a different picture of who God is in the Old Covenant than who he is in the New Covenant? If we do, then we're not thinking rightly about who God is. We might be imagining what he was like in a certain time or place where, where corporate gathered worship was done differently. We might be answering or, or finishing statements like, I think God is like. And so I want us to spend time thinking about who God is. And as we introduce this idea today of the attributes of God, uh, talking about what God is like, I want to ask and answer three questions, and then I want to just posit for you two somewhat diagnostic questions. Question number one is, what is an attribute of God? What, what do I mean when I say I want to talk about the attributes of God? Here's my definition of an attribute. My defini definition of an attribute is this. An attribute of God is anything true about God's nature. Anything true about God's nature. And so we talk about things like his love, that God is love. Now, we can overemphasize attributes. We can underemphasize attributes. But to say that God is love is certainly true. To say that he is just is also true. That he is gracious, merciful, patient, kind, angry, jealous, vengeful. All of these are true statements about who God is and what he has revealed to us about himself in Scripture. So an attribute is simply anything that is true about who God is and therefore what God does. And so as we look at an attribute of God, we're simply going to be asking, what is true about God in regards to his love, in regards to his justice, in regards to his mercy, in regards to his wrath? Question number two, this is the one we're going to spend the most time on today. Why does the accuracy of our thoughts about God matter? I mean, does it really matter that much? And I would charge to us that it does. And we're going to answer these questions 
by and through God's word. Because God has always formed his people by his word and around his word. And so we're going to look to God's word to even answer this question. Why does the accuracy of our thoughts about God matter? The first time God gave his people written word, which was not so much pen to paper, but finger to stone, as he gave it to Moses on, uh, the, on Mount Sinai, and Moses brought it before his people, one of the things he gave them was the Ten Commandments, these first Ten Commandments. Ron Mel called them Tender Commandments. This, this guiding uh, instruction from a loving father. And the first two commandments were pretty significant. Does anybody recall what they are? You don't have to answer that out loud. But the first commandment, the first commandment God gave to his people is, you shall have no other gods before me. Beside me, there is no other. There is no other God in heaven or in earth, is, is the, uh, the repeated uh, assertion of Scripture. It's not just that there's other ones and he's to be the chief. It is that he is the only God, and you are to have no other gods. There is to be nothing before him that is worshipped more than God, nothing that is to be delighted in more than him. And the second is interesting, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not attach any image to the worship of God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or anything else that, is, that, is a, that looks like something in the heavens above or in the earth beneath or, or in the waters, nothing, no image is to be attached to God. The question before us is why not? Why are we not to attach any image to God? Well, I would say we get a great example all, right here also in Exodus of what happens when we attach an image to who God is. I think it's easy for us as to think of Moses. He's up on Sinai. He's talking with God. He's receiving the Ten Commandments and other instructions about the law and the tabernacle and the priestly service and, and worship and all of these things. And the people, they, they're like, well, Moses, you know, he's gone. He's disappeared. Let's make another God. And they take out all their earrings and their nose rings and their bracelets and they make a golden calf and they worship a different God. So that's not really what we find in Exodus. Listen to what we see after this, this golden calf in Exodus 32 was created. Verse uh, 4 of Exodus 32 says, And he, that is Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods. Now, the interesting thing about the word gods in, in Hebrew is, is Elohim is plural gods. It is also the word used to refer to the one true God. And so when you see capital G, God, it's Elohim, plural. And when you see small g, gods, it's Elohim, plural. I'm wondering if this would not be better translated, this is your God. Because look at what comes next. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation 
tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. He is not presenting this golden calf to the people as a different God. He is simply attaching an image to the God, Yahweh by name, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And they've simply attached an image, the image of a calf, to the worship of God. Now, they haven't worshipped a different God. They haven't violated the first commandment. Why is attaching an image to the worship of God such a bad thing? Well, I think we find this revealed to us in Psalm 50, where in Psalm 50, verse 21, to the wicked man, we, we see this. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. The problem with attaching any image to God is that image is always creaturely. It is always something that God has made. And either whether it be an animal, as in Exodus 32, where they attach the image of a calf to God, Or, we're in Psalm 50, where we simply imagine, we simply think that God is like us. And the reason we are not allowed to attach any image to the worship of Him is because we cannot reduce Him to being one like us. Let me share with you, out of the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, it's a rather long quote, but this was the part that just absolutely destroyed me. Tozer says this. He says, Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom libel on his character. It is at bottom saying something ill of his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God, one made after its own likeness. Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it, and will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of the mind from which it emerges." A God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness of the true God. Thou thoughtest, said the Lord to the wicked man in the psalm, this is a reference to Psalm 50, verse 21, that I was altogether such as one as thyself. Surely this must be a serious affront to the Most High God, before whom cherubim and seraphim continually do cry, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. That's Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, angel armies. Here it is. This this was and still is the most devastating part to me. Let us beware, lest we in our pride accept an erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration, and that civilized people are therefore free from it. 
the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt, overt act of worship has taken place. All that is required from me to, to break this first commandment, to have a, an idol other than God, is to simply think of him as other than he is. And now I'm not worshiping the true God anymore. I'm worshiping a God of my own making. A God of my own imagining, who no doubt will, will take the, the same shape as me. It will be like the heart from which it springs. And i got to be honest and say, this God made in the image of me is the easiest God out there to worship. I love worshiping that God. Not because I love that God, but because I love myself. And I'm like, oh man, a God that looks like me must be worthy of worship. It's really, really easy to worship that God. It's really easy to worship a God who is merciful and gracious, which is how God always describes himself first. But, but what about that wrath and anger and vengeance stuff? I'm not sure that's the God I, I want. What about when the God of the Bible who reveals himself as, as a trinity of persons with different rules, makes men and women both equally in his image, but with, I said rules, I meant roles, but also with different roles. And our modern sensibilities go, I'm not so sure about that. Is that just an error in our understanding of who we are? Or might there be a greater error in misunderstanding who God is? And therefore, we don't understand who we are. One of the things Tozer says later in the book is that it's time for the church to return to views of God that are worthy of him. Now, that part I understand. And then he says three words that I did not expect. He says it's time for the church to return to views of God that are worthy of him and of her. See, the church bought by the blood of Christ is worthy of right views of who God is. Why does what we think matter? Why does our theology matter? Because it always flows out of who we understand God to be. I've been thinking a little bit about the modern church. And where might we in our day and age be prone to go wrong? And what came to mind is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Jesus says, it's a passage we all know very well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And I'm a little afraid that the modern church has overemphasized the loving of God with our heart and our soul to the exclusion of our mind. It could also be true of uh, various points in history that the church had loved God with its mind to the exclusion of heart and soul. I think, I think to remove any one of these creates an imbalance in what the church is. God is not seeking those, as he 
told the woman at the well in Samaria who will worship him on this mountain or that mountain. They worshiped at Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritan temple was. They worshiped at Mount Moriah. That's where the temple mount is. And she says, which, which Jesus is it, which location is it we're supposed to worship at? And he says, neither. There's a day coming where God is not looking for who will worship on this mountain or that mountain, but he is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth with heart and soul and mind. The, the reason for this is simple. You cannot love what you cannot know. You cannot love what you cannot know. This is true in human relationships as well. If you don't know who your spouse is, you can't love them. If you imagine them to be somebody entirely other than who they are, then you love the image of, that you have formed of them and not who they actually are. The same is true for our children and for our, our parents. You can't love what you don't know. And if you can't love what you don't know, you can't worship what you don't know. And this is where this gets really important. Because I think the highest call of the church is worship. It is the clarion call. It is why we do everything else. Why do we gather as a church? Because God is worthy of worship. Why do we read our Bibles and pray on our own? Because God is worthy of worship. Why do we instruct our children in the knowledge and admonition and instruction of the Lord? Because God is worthy of worship. Why do we build relationships with unbelievers and tell them who Jesus is? Because God is worthy of worship. Evangelism exists. Missions exist. The church exists so that worship will exist. It is true that as we think about telling people about the gospel and inviting them to believe and trust what God has done, we are, as, as Jude says, trying to snatch people out of, out of hell like firebrands. But it is not just so that they might be rescued from hell. It's so that they might join the chorus of worshipers. Because worship is the all-important task before the church. And so I evangelize because I'm a worshiper. I gather because I'm a worshiper. I pray because I'm a worshiper. And, and in a vacuum of worship, we don't cease to worship. We just worship other things. You cannot love what you do not know. And you cannot worship what you do not love. We have kind of unrolled this new vision statement that says Trinity Baptist Church exists to take steps together to love God and make him known. Why is that the formula? Because we can't control whether other people love God. But we can make them known and invite them to love him. And when we love him, we will worship him. But we can't love him and we can't make him known if we don't know who he is. If we don't engage our minds. The gravest and greatest and most important question before the church is always, who is God? Who is God? So why does it matter? 
Because idolatry and worship are at stake. I should say idolatry and true worship are at stake. Because we will always worship something. But we want to be faithful to direct our worship at the true God. And so an attribute of God is something that is true about who he is. Why are those important things to know? Because if we don't know them, we can't love them. And if we don't love them, we can't worship him. Some of them will be hard. Some of them, I promise you, I've been there, I've experienced, I still struggle with. Some of them we will hear and go, I don't like that. And that's okay. Because over time, God will work in us through the knowledge of who he is and affection for who he is. And as that affection for who he is grows, what flows out of it is a love for who he is. We must think rightly about God. And my third question for us all is, what can we know about God? And the answer, on our own, is very, very little, if not nothing. Just just trying on our own to know who God is, to answer the questions I think God is like, or I imagine God is, is is really a, a futile end. We can't know God on our own strength, our own efforts, or our own merits. Romans 1.20 says that his invisible attributes, namely his, inter- his eternal power and, ha- and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So in just terms of general revelation, the world around us, we should be able to look at the world around us and go, I can see that God is and that he's powerful. However, the rest of Romans chapter 1 tells us that what we do is suppress that truth through sin. So the world should be able to look around and see that God is, that he is eternal, that he's powerful. But with our sin, we suppress that truth and worship the creation rather than the creator. And so on our own, even though we might have the innate ability to understand that God is and that he is powerful, we use sin to suppress that truth. And so on our own, we are in trouble. Which is why God has given us his word. We can know him in his word. I cannot recall for the life of me where I read this, but it was the most helpful thing. It's not original to me, and it's just an analogy. But how could Romeo and Juliet know William Shakespeare? There is only one way that those two could know their creator, and that is if he wrote himself into the story. If he writes himself as a character in the story, now they can know him. And that is precisely in God's word, both his written word, the Bible, and the living word, Christ, who is revealed to us in his written word, how he has revealed himself to us. How can we know who God is? He has written himself into the story. As you read the Old Testament, what you see over and over again is to see the God who is at work among you, who, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, who rescued you, who brought you through the Red Sea, who brought you into the promised land. The, the, the call of the Old Testament is over and over again, see what God has done so that you might see who he is. 
And the call of the New Testament over and over and over again is to look to Christ so that you can see what God has done and who God is. Because in the person of Christ, God becomes one of us. We now have an image, as Colossians tells us. We now have something to behold. We don't have to attach an image to God. God did it for us in the person of Christ. And then we run to the cross over and over again where we see the attributes of God. We see his anger as his son is killed. We see his justice as he doesn't just let our sin go but makes payment for it. We see his love as he neither leaves his son in the grave nor us. We see his grace as he gives us every good blessing that Christ earned and lavishes it on us. We see mercy in that he sent Christ to rescue us out of our horrible, terrible, hell-bound plight. We see vengeance when those who don't trust Christ are condemned to an eternity to pay for their own sin. At the cross, we see every attribute of God. We see love for us and for holiness and for his son and grace and mercy and justice and wrath. It's all there. And as we see the attributes of God at the cross, and then we begin to love who he is for what he has done and who he is, and we begin to worship him, it becomes easier and easier to trust this God, which is what faith is, a simple trust. God has written himself into the story. And we can know who he is because he has revealed himself. Could Romeo and Juliet perfectly know William Shakespeare? No. But they could know things that are true about William Shakespeare. And that's the way it is for us. This is where we come back to my prideful pursuit of seeking to know who God is. I cannot and I never will be able to fully comprehend who God is. There will be no day in eternity future where where you can comprehend an infinite God. Wrap your mind around that. Eternity is not enough time to plumb the depths of the knowledge of an infinite God. There will be no day in eternity where you're like, got him figured out. There will be no day where he ceases to amaze you. There will be no day where there's not something new and beautiful to learn about him. I will never fully comprehend God. But I can know that what he has revealed about himself to me in his word is true about God. I can't know everything about God, but I can know true things about God. Theology, uh, theologians, pastors, uh, even songs have talked about this in, in terms of condescension. We don't like that term. We don't like to be condescended to because when, when somebody is condescending, they're looking down on you. They think they're, you're beneath them and that they have to dumb things down for you because you are less than they are. Well, guess what? Wonderfully, God has condescended to us. Come Christians, join to sing. 
Alleluia, amen. Loud praise to Christ our King. Alleluia, amen. Let all with heart and voice before his throne rejoice. Praise is his gracious choice. Alleluia, amen. Come, lift your hearts on high. Alleluia, amen. Let praises fill the sky. Alleluia, amen. He is our guide and friend to us. He'll condescend. His love shall never end. Alleluia, amen. Praise yet our Christ again. Alleluia, amen. Life shall not end the strain. Alleluia, amen. On heaven's blissful shore, his goodness will adore, singing forevermore. Alleluia, amen. What God has given to us in his word is the dumbed-down version of himself so that we can wrap our puny little minds around the greatness of the majesty of God. What a wonderful thing that he has condescended to us. And so while I can't know everything about God, I can know true things about God. Not through my imagination or my thinking of who he is like, but through his word as he has written himself into history so that I might know who he is and what he has done. Deuteronomy 29.29 became in this pursuit a helpful verse to me. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are secret things about who God is. Paul was told not to reveal all that he saw about God in 2 Corinthians. John was told the same in Revelation. The secret things belong to the Lord. Oh, but the things revealed, they belong to us and our children forever. Not only that we may know God, but that we may obey God, that we may worship Him, that we may love Him and adore Him. And it is our task always to seek to know what He has revealed to us. And so here's my two diagnostic questions. First, do I read His Word regularly? Do I read his word regularly? What if I told you, and you believed me, or what if it was in God's word? This would be even better. That at 10.30 a.m. at Trinity Baptist Church in Walla Walla, September 4th, 2022, you would hear the audible voice of God from heaven. That God was going to speak. Would you be here? That's exactly what happens every time we open his word and read it. That's exactly what happens every time you open his word and read it. We must read God's word because it is his voice to us. Do I read his word regularly? And secondly, do I want to hear his word preached? 
We must know who he is and, how, and, 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 and who he has revealed himself to be. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's a little scary because we want God to be manageable. We want him to be understandable. Rich Mullins said, if God were as tame as most Christians want him to be, he would be useless to Christianity. Oh, that's so true. That's so true. I said I was only going to say this if I have time. I probably don't have time. I'm going to say it anyways. And this is where we're going to end. I've shared this before. But it is my maybe favorite piece of fiction. And it comes from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. As C.S. Lewis is writing the story, and as all four of the children, the brothers and sisters, if you haven't seen the story or read the book, or, or I mean, seen the movie or read the book, read the book because the movie destroys this. They all enter into Narnia. And they find Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they go with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Edmund sneaks off during this part of the book to go find the white witch. But the conversation is going on between the three children who are left and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver that they are going to go see Aslan tomorrow. And it comes out in the conversation that Aslan is a lion, something that the children did not know. And they get a little nervous they're told they should be a little nervous. And I believe it's um, Susan who asks the question, as Mrs. Beaver is explaining who Aslan the lion is, she asks the question, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver erupts, safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is the God who we must know. Not a God who is safe or manageable. But a God who is good. Heavenly Father, may we know who you are. May we humbly accept the fact that we will not know everything about you. That that's wonderful because you're not like us. And it speaks to how far above us you are. But may we be delighted to know true things about you. May we be delighted to, uh, to know who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us in your word, in your works, and in the person of Jesus Christ. And may we not try and have a manageable or understandable or, or likable according to our own sensible view, sensibilities about who we think you should be, but may we just surrender ourselves to knowing you for who you are as you have revealed yourself in, in your word. And that we would, for the things we already love and the things we already know and the things maybe we don't love and don't know, may, may you work in us a love for you that we might be worshipers of you. And as we turn now to communion, as we, re we recall the fact that, that Christ was given for us on the cross, that his uh, body was not broken, but, but given for us, and his blood was shed for us, and that through faith we are partakers of his death and resurrection and life and your love and grace and mercy and his righteousness. May we not only understand what you have done for us in Christ and how we are partakers with him of his death and resurrection through faith, but may we understand 
who you are. May we understand and see justice and anger and wrath and love and grace and mercy at the cross, not only in the work of Jesus, but in his face, giving himself willingly to atone for our sin. May this be not only an act proclaiming who you are and what you have done, but a unifying act for us as a body, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would those who are serving come forward and serve us as we sing together?